thank you all for coming to this public lecture, Changing Cultures of Witnessing, Paintings, Selfies, and Hashtags. Um, my name is Sarah Benet Weiser. I am a professor in the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSE. Um, and um, I'm really, really pleased to welcome our esteemed panel of scholars who are going to talk to us tonight about the politics of witnessing, the politics of visibility, and of invisibility. Um, because we have three papers, um, and I want to make sure that there's enough time for a good Q&A session, I'm just going to introduce our speakers um, in the order in which they are going to speak. And then uh, what we're gonna, how we're going to kind of organize this talk is that each, each speaker will come up and give their presentation and then respond to each other um, for a few minutes after all three have presented, and then we will open it up for Q&A. Um, so uh, the, um, just so you know, for those, I guess I'm supposed to tell you this, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE witnessing. Um, also, as I'm sure we all know, please put your phones on silent. Um, so as not to disrupt the speakers when they're presenting. And this evening's event is also being recorded and will be made available as a podcast after this evening. Um, okay, so to start off with, I'm going to introduce uh, the, our first speaker, who is my colleague, Lily Huliarki, um, also a professor in the Department of Media and Communication, um, communications here at LSE. Her paper is titled Changing Cultures of Witnessing from Other to Self-Oriented Victimhood. And Lily is, um, Lily's main research interest lies in the histories and challenges of what she calls mediated suffering. Um, and her work has kind of focused on three different domains in which the human sort of body in need um, appears as a problem of communication. Uh, uh, and the three areas are disaster news, humanitarian campaigns and celebrity ad humanitarian, humanitarian campaigns and celebrity advocacy and war and conflict reporting. Um, she has her relevant pu publications for tonight are discourse in late modernity, uh, the Spectatorship of Suffering and uh, the Ironic Spectator, which won the International Communication Association's Outstanding Book Award in 2015. Uh, next, we have Robin Wagner Pachipici, and I want everyone to notice how well I pronounced that blame. Um, poor Robin, I've been practicing it on her all evening. Um, she's probably very tired of hearing her own name. Um, her, uh, her, her paper is called Portraits of Courage Caught in the Sovereign ga Sovereign's Gaze. Robin is, um, at, is the university in exile professor of sociology, which is quite a title, at the New School for Social Research in New York. Her research addresses moments of crisis and transformation in social life and the problems of mediation, uh, mediation and representations that they pose. And she will be talking today about um, a book that uh, former President, U.S. President George Bush, um, has, uh, is, is currently writing or is, has written, currently just published, called Portraits of Courage, a Commander-in-Chief's Tribute to America's Warriors. Um, and finally, we have um, Barry Zelizer, who is, her, her uh, paper is called How to Witness Invisibility, 
Um, and uh, is, she is, Barbie is the Raymond Williams Professor of Communication and the Director of the Scholars Program at, in Culture and Communication at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, she is a former journalist and is known for her work on journalism, culture, memory, including collective memory images and images, particularly in times of crisis. She has published 14 books and over 100 articles and essays. Um, and she's a recipient of multiple fellowships. She's also a media critic. Um, and she is the founding editor and, and current editor, and she told me today that she thinks she's going to be the editor until she dies of journalism, uh, theory, practice, and criticism. Um, she has also, um, she's also, in the spring of 2018, she has, she has uh, founded a center at the University of Pennsylvania um, and she is now the director of this center called the Center for Media at Risk, which is a platform devoted to addressing media practice in journalism and documentary and entertainment and online practice in situations of kind of creeping authoritarianism, something that is obviously clearly relevant for the contemporary moment. So tonight, there again, they're going to be talking about issues of witnessing, cultures of witnessing, what it means to think about witnessing and visibility and invisibility in the current moment of what I think in many, uh, in many ways we can call an ongoing crisis of authoritarianism and witnessing. And so please welcome our speakers. Can you hear me? Up at the back. Good. Uh, welcome to everyone, and thank you, Sarah, for the introduction. Um, let me start straight away by saying that uh, what I would like to do today is use uh, the concept of witnessing our engagement with human suffering as a cause for action as an analytical lens through which to track a process of change. I argue with Caroline Dane that witnessing is not a universal act that involves a spectator and a victim um, caught in a bond of sympathy or aversion, but rather witnessing, to echo Barbie, uh, is a situated set of practices of mediation through which we engage with vulnerability in a range of moral uh, responses and affective attachments, both personal and collective. Practices of witnessing, in other words, are part of and produce cultures of witnessing within which we are not only invited to respond to human suffering, but also to define our own identity and our collective uh, sense of belonging. And my historical starting point is Didier Fasson and uh, Richard uh, Rechtman's uh, historical um, argument uh, in their empire of trauma, that the 20th century, as they say, is characterized by a transition of the sufferer from a marginalized uh, figure to someone with a respected status. And uh, again, a transition of victimhood, once regarded as a personal defect, to now being a legitimate moral category that confers recognition to those who suffer. 
So by tracing some paradigmatic cultures of witnessing across the past 50 years, particularly in Western contexts, I want to complicate this argument that they make about the empire of trauma in two ways. First, I want to show the role of digital media in this transformation. And second, I want to draw attention to the present moment. And I want to point to the crucial political uh, struggles that are taking place in uh, the dominant Western culture of witnessing, if you like, uh, that we today see, whereby victimhood is being appropriated uh, uh, is, is uh, appropriated not only by those who have historically suffered injustice and trauma, but importantly also by those neoliberal and patriarchal structures of power that have inflicted and continue to inflict that suffering in the first place. So which are these historical cultures of witnessing? What political communities do they constitute? And to whose benefit do they work? To whose cost? This is an early but dominant until today humanitarian culture of witnessing. And the obvious point here is that within this culture, the body in pain, the human body in pain, continues to be central to the paternalist imagination of the post-colonial world order, where non-Western others are construed as powerless victims and our political community as guilty but wealthy benefactors who can make a difference. Here, in this one, uh, the vulnerability, sorry, in this one, in the new one, where witnessing, uh, witnessing culture is a culture of empowerment, the vulnerability of those whose precarity stems from material conditions of historical expropriation and global inequality is articulated with empowerment, with a sense of agency and sovereignty. So in this culture, the passive victim that we saw earlier is replaced by the purposeful and sovereign actor someone who is able to act on her conditions of existence. So empowerment here historically emerges as a response to victimhood. It is a discursive appropriation, if you like, of the critique of victimhood into a neocolonial discourse of the global south. Yet empowerment, all these images of smiley children going to school and enjoying life, has itself been criticized as a misleading uh, testimony of sovereign uh, agency that masks the hierarchies of place and human life embedded in uh, unequal world orders. If empowerment has been a late 20th century response to the critique of victimhood. Um, these images here belong to a more recent culture of witnessing. They inaugurate what in the ironic spectator I call a self-reflexive or post-humanitarian witnessing. This is a culture of witnessing that continues to treat vulnerability as a cause of emotion and action 
but does so by effacing, taking away the vulnerable others and turning to the self. Examples of this kind of post-humanitarian witnessing is, uh, it can be found also in all the examples of celebrity advocacy that you see. When we see celebrities speaking on behalf of others, when we see them traveling around in different uh, refugee camps or, 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 um, or uh, zones of crisis and war, uh, where the camera follows what they do, perhaps what they wear or what they say, adding something about their newest film, and then, by the way, mentioning the fact that they are also doing humanitarian work in this or that part of the world. And you can also see it, for instance, on appeals like um, uh, the Red Nose uh, campaign of, of comic relief or in Christmas online shopping campaigns of various NGOs that invite us to shop in order to do good. What happens with this form of self-reflexive witnessing, I have argued, is that uh, it kind of deals in a new way with the tensions between agency and paternalism, victimhood and empowerment as inadequate responses to the question of how do we respond to suffering others. Rather than confronting questions of, uh, of, of agency and, and uh, victimhood, uh, these self-reflexive visualities avoid those difficult questions altogether. They avoid addressing uh, the issues of vulnerability, action, and power. Agency, instead, is displaced onto us as Western consumers and consists of light-touch acts of online self-expression. For instance, do the quiz to find your feeling, and, and then work out what kind of a humanitarian you are, but also simpler things like liking or sharing pages on Facebook or Instagram, retweeting uh, hashtags or signing online petitions. Now, this is still a political community of benevolent um, uh, citizens, but it is really a community that more precisely can be described as a community of benevolent utilitarians shaped by the corporate logics of NGOs and their use of digital media, uh, where we interact amongst ourselves in order to do good and make a difference to the lives of distant others. And, and here is uh, a kind of a cartoon that I think uh, sums up that contemporary condition of self-reflexive um, uh, humanitarian sensibility or self-reflexive witnessing that I, I, I try to describe. Now, seen from this perspective of the dominant cultures uh, of, of, of uh, the uh, Western contexts, the use of social media platforms by vulnerable groups around the world, from the Arab Spring bloggers to the citizen journalists in Syria, perform the important task of interrupting this neoliberal culture of post-humanitarian witnessing. Yet, as I claim in my forthcoming uh, Witnessing Without Responsibility, the digital testimonies of vulnerability, the mobile phone videos of war death, the tweets from conflict zones, the selfies of refugees, are now more than ever open to critique and to doubt. 
flesh witnessing, the witnessing of those who take pictures uh, in the heat of, of, of a conflict or as they cross the Mediterranean, is, in other words, systematically subjected to digital suspicion. This digital suspicion, I argue, is institutionalized in global news platforms which may profit from the clicks and shares of sensational flesh witnessing, yet at the same time raise questions over the legitimacy of those testimonies. Who, who films that? Who writes that? What's the status? Over their authenticity, is it true? And over their appropriacy. Does it offend us? Should we publish it? As a result, digital testimonies from conflict zones are systematically remediated in our uh, spaces, Western media spaces, as dubious or fake, emotionally damaging or aesthetically offensive. They're rarely ever framed as deserving understanding or affective attachment. So the imagery of vulnerability as resistance in contexts of life and death may articulate the most morally compelling and urgent culture of witnessing, yet is also the most fragile and unstable culture of witnessing of all. So if cultures of post-humanitarianism and digital suspicion today ignore or corrupt testimonies of acute human need and relentless violence. Which cultures of witnessing dominate our media spaces then? And this takes me full circle back to victimhood. Only this time, victimhood is disarticulated from precarious bodies in contexts of life and death, of risk on life and death, it is instead attached to signifiers of privilege, male privilege. Be this class anxiety over borders or security, or challenged privilege, as we perhaps remember this recent case, victimhood is, as we see all around us, relocated within Western political communities uh, themselves, and the victims are amongst us. <coughs> As Sarah Bannett Weiser argues, post 9 11, a significant cultural shift has occurred where white identity has been recast as uniquely uh, vulnerable and victimized. This reimagining of victimhood is today at the heart of a reactionary identity politics driven largely by social media, one that fully resonates with Trump's Make America Great Again or Farage's Take Back Control. This performative self-victimhood and its popular misogyny resonates neatly with Fassin and, and uh, Rechtman's um, uh, early reference I made to, uh, empire, uh, to the empire of tra trauma, the, the kind of our era being the era of, of trauma. <clears throat> but it also complicates it and says something more than that. It spots a crucial shift in the contemporary culture of witnessing, witnessing a shift from others 
as subjects, distant others as subjects of suffering, evident in the earlier paternalisms that we saw, uh, towards the male self as the uh, main legitimate uh, subject of, of vulnerability. We have so far seen that there are various cultures of witnessing that coexist within uh, what Fassin and Rechman call the uh, dominant moral economy of the 20th and the 21st century. We've seen that victimhood, empowerment, self-reflexivity, digital suspicion, and the last version of self-victimhood are all cultures of witnessing that claim to define and constantly redefine our uh, 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 personal identities and collective senses of self. as they have done for a long time. Today, however, these visualities operate within market, political, and technological contexts that instrumentalize and commercialize the political uses of vulnerability. The consumerist activism of self-expression, the digital suspicion of flesh witnessing, and the reactionary hyper-vulnerability of Western white male victims work in this sense as forms of symbolic redistribution. They establish a neoliberal self-oriented culture of witnessing that not only reconfigures vulnerability by redefining who appears as legitimately injured, but crucially appropriates the moral meanings of vulnerability itself, its reliance on history and on the material conditions that have caused uh, the long-term systemic suffering of others and place those meanings of vulnerability today at the service of the already powerful. In so doing, this neoliberal culture of witnessing perpetuates existing racial and gender hierarchies that privilege certain bodies over others, that classify vulnerability in terms of the worthy versus the undeserving, the grievable versus the ungrievable lives. The political struggle here is also, not only, but also, a struggle around visibility and narrative. It lies in challenging this culture and its market-driven platform structures. It is about keeping uh, our cultures of witnessing as an open space as possible, preserving what we might call its agonistic plurality, and finding ways to grant vulnerable bodies even in their mortality, the visibility that they claim, importantly, in the terms that they claim it. As they fight to tell their story, connect with others, and speak back to power. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Can you hear me? I want to thank our hosts, Sarah and and Lily for having invited me, and I'll thank Barbie too because she's here. <laughs> and we're all very good friends. So I'm, I'm very um, happy to be here and um, want to talk tonight about uh, a new artist burst upon the scene, George W. Bush. <laughs> um, 
So in 2017, former U.S. President George W. Bush published a, a book of portrait paintings he'd completed during the eight years since he had left office. While animals and self-portraits and famous politicians had been the subjects of some of his earlier post-presidential efforts, this book titled, as you can see, Portraits of Courage, a Commander-in-Chief's Tribute to American Warriors, consisted exclusively of portraits of wounded U.S. military veterans of the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, Bush's wars. The book contains nearly 100 portraits. Most are close-ups of faces and torsos, and some are full body length, and many reveal scars and prostheses. Deep in the throes, and they are throes, of the Trump presidency, it is easy to slip into nostalgia for previous U.S. presidential administrations, even that of the younger Bush. Thus, I think it's useful to force a critical revisiting of past administrations in order to remember their own transgressions and sovereign overreaches, their own crises of legitimacy and betrayals of public trust and their own representational strategies. Bush's wounded veteran portraits provide one important medium and site for such a revisiting. They also raise many issues regarding the concepts of courage and its <coughs> representation, the role of witnesses in politics and war, and the nature and purview of sovereignty. You may all be familiar with the 17th century painting by Diego Velazquez, Las Meninas, painted in 1656 and 67, oh, through 67. Themes of sovereignty, power, and the nature of representation are certainly at work in this painting by Habsburg King Philip IV's official court painter. We see Velazquez himself standing by the, uh, the, the uh, painting that he's working on, the Infanta and her courtiers and ladies' maids, the onlookers, and the king and queen of Spain, Philip IV and Mariana. It is believed, although you cannot really see it in this because it's a little bit too bright, but it is believed that they are up, up here in a mirror, very dim. Uh, I wish you could see it, <laughs> but they're there. Um, luminous and dim at the same time. Convention and tradition would imply that whenever the sovereign is in the room, the sovereign is the subject, and his subjects will attend to him, though the painting provides several possible subjects. The sovereign may regard his subjects with his omnipresent gaze, but it is his image that is copied and circulated across the realm, augmenting his powers. So what and who are the true subjects of this painting? It's elicited much commentary and interpretation over the centuries, perhaps none more famous than the essay by Michel Foucault titled simply Las Meninas. Foucault focuses on the complex network of gazes and glances and distractions and describes the painting as one in which a, quote, slender line of reciprocal visibility embraces a whole complex network of uncertainties, exchanges, and feints. Reciprocal visibility is such a redolent and meaningful phrase, especially when que questions of witnessing and its media are at hand. 
The idea of reciprocity is also especially vexing when the subjects who are simultaneously both doing the looking and being looked at are fundamentally unequal in their powers, as it would seem for court painters and monarchs or military veterans and former presidents. Focusing on the reflection of the king and queen of Spain that hovers in the back of the artist's studio, Foucault writes, quote, of all of these figures represented before us, they are the most ignored since no one is paying the slightest attention to that reflection which has slipped into the room behind them all. Inversely, insofar as they stand outside the picture and are therefore withdrawn from it, an essential invisibility they provide the center around which the entire representation is ordered, end quote. The monarchs may be present or absent or reflected in a mirror, something in between. Nevertheless, they remain the central figures of the realm, the palace, and the painting. So it's difficult to say exactly why I thought of Las Meninas when I first saw George W. Bush's portraits of the American wounded veterans rather than the court painter or the White House artist rendering the sovereign, we have the sovereign painting his political subjects. So there are echoes of the reversals of perspective and power and gaze so pronounced in the Velazquez masterpiece. In the case of Bush's portraits, the issues, wa the issues was how the makers and the fighters of contemporary wars were to be represented and by whom. The Bush paintings have unstable identities. Are they artistic subjects, political subjects, military subjects, or hi autonomous historical agents? And what about the painter who started these wars, who sent the veterans into battle and captures them in oil years later? What kind of a subject is he? Laura Bush, George Bush's wife writes in one of the forewords of the book that, quote, each of the remarkable men and women featured in this book is someone George knows. George painted them from his perspective as an artist who was once their commander-in-chief. In his narrative descriptions accompanying each portrait, Bush provides basic details of the veterans' motives for volunteering to fight, of the explosions and attacks that wounded them, and of their difficulties in re-entering civilian life. He also refers frequently to his role as their commander-in-chief, to his post-presidency life, and sometimes to his own efforts to find meaning. As a painter, former President Bush represents his subjects pictorially, determining which features to highlight, which perspectives to stress, how close, how far away, how calm or puzzled or sad or satisfied the mean of each veteran. Just show these again to you. He freezes them in time and by his gaze and his brushes. He also apparently defers to them. They are portraits of courage. They become the subject of his attention and his gaze. It is they, not him, who are being painted and admired. But coming as it does from their former commander-in-chief, it's not clear how an invitation or command to become a painted portrait is received. Is it a request? Is it an order? Can a veteran decline when the sovereign calls? On the one hand, Bush seems to desire a reversal of conventional official deference as he salutes them. Quote, 
He writes, this is a tribute to men and women who volunteered mainly in the years after 9-11 to defend our country. The greatest honor of the presidency was looking them in the eye and saluting them as their commander-in-chief, end quote. On the other hand, the call to action, whether it be one of the sporting events that Bush organizes or inclusion as a model for a portrait, stubbornly follows institutional hierarchies, however humorous or self-conscious. For example... Sergeant Major Chris Self is described by Bush as experiencing difficulties having a new leg prosthesis made when, quote, we talked about biking and I suggested Chris come with me at the ranch and ride. Well, I sort of challenged him to it. I'm a good soldier, sir, he said. You say when and where and I'll be there, end quote. The differences between an invitation, a challenge, and an order are unclear, but the good soldier will show up. This is Chris Self. And what about all those injuries and wounds, some visible and invisible, that reverberate in painting after painting? Amputated limbs, pieces of shrapnel lodged in the body, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, alcoholism. As a painter, Bush need take no responsibility for the wounds and conditions of his subjects. He expresses concern, admiration, appreciation. As a former wartime sovereign, there's no expression of responsibility, remorse, or apology. War's havoc is clear. War's reasons are mute. With all this havoc, it's possible to ask if this book could be viewed as an anti-war book or as one ennobling war through renderings of war's maimed heroes. Strangely, reading the narratives by Bush accompanying each portrait, the subject of war never really seems to be the issue. Rather, it's adjustment to civilian life, dealing with the psychological and physical wounds, finding one's way through depression and disability. Wars are just there, like a harsh and dangerous landscape to be traversed, the backgrounds of the lives of warriors. Nevertheless, the repetitive, obsessive, artistic rendering of veteran after veteran implies a nearly impossible totalizing project and the expiatory impulse behind it. There are 98 portraits in the book, but with estimates of more than 52,000 service members having been physically wounded in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and as many as 400,000 with psychological wounds, a complete rendering of even only the Americans who fought in the war, let alone others and the Iraqis and the Afghanistan people, beggars the imagination. An interview reveals Bush's answer to a question about the therapeutic quality of his project. Therapeutic, that is, for him, quote, he says. It's an interesting question. In a sense, it's therapeutic, not that it unburdens my soul, it's not the painting that unburdens my soul. It's the belief in the cause and the people. To the extent that a soul needs to be unburdened, the painting was a joyful experience, and if that's therapy, that's therapy. He leaves it unclear what is the extent to which a soul needs to be unburdened. Here's some more of the veterans. Wounds play an important role in these projects involving wars and sovereign legitimacy. As Barry Schwartz and I wrote many years ago, 
about the wounded Vietnam veteran, Jan Scruggs, who had 11 pieces of shrapnel in his body and was the animating force behind the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Wounds here are legitimating marks. The body of the veteran is the proof of the intimate experience of war, courage, and manhood. Scruggs' wounds make him a generalizable veteran, a collective representation. Wounded veterans mediate war and peace, the military and the civilian worlds, and the living and the dead. But as the portraits and the accompanying narratives in Portraits of Courage make clear, the lives of wounded veterans are full of pain and struggle and often pathologies of body and mind. Thus, wounds can be both legitimating and contaminating at the same time and invariably raise the specter of the hideousness and inhumanity of war particularly in the context of the Bush Doctrine's justification of preemptive war and the general rejection of any narrative justifying the wars in which the veterans fought, these wounded veterans as artistic subjects bear ever more symbolic burdens. The conviction that character is best reflected in the face is one expressed by Bush himself. He says, most of the paintings are closely cropped, portraits that I hope give viewers a sense of the remarkable character of these men and women. I wanted to show their determination to recover, lack of self-pity, and desire to continue to serve. The faces Bush paints from photographs he receives from others, and we can talk about that if you'd like in the discussion, are mobile and alert even when they are obviously sad or depressed. Only one of the paintings in the book features Bush himself and it functions in a way that's reminiscent of the peekaboo mirror image of the king and queen of Spain in Las Meninas. Bush is painted dancing with First Lieutenant Melissa Stockwell, one of only two women portrayed in the book. It shows them both full length. She has a prosthesis where her leg was amputated. Bush's self-portrait in this dancing scene is the only full-length portrait in the book to feature no visible wounds. Thus, we find a distinct, perhaps unique form of sovereign exception, that being the intact body of the sovereign amongst his damaged and mutilated subjects. But claiming the sovereign exception requires a legitimate claim to sovereignty. And here we have to remind ourselves, Bush is a former sovereign, and the veterans are former soldiers. These portraits limb a temporal threshold, but one not easy to traverse or specify with certitude. With very few exceptions, there's an absence of military insignias or uniforms. Veterans are dressed in casual T-shirts, Bush dressed in dark green shirt and blue pants. But many of the elements of the book, including the sporting events organized by the Bush Institute that surround it, raise questions about sovereignty and its purview. To what extent does Bush's sovereignty still attach to his person many years out from his presidency? This is an unexpected and open question given the United States' commitment to dem democratic transfers of power. One place this question comes up regards the duties and perquisites of office. For example, Bush features one veteran officer, Daniel Gade, and highlights the occasion of his promotion as he's still in the military. Quote, in May 2013, my staff informed me that Dan was being promoted from major to lieutenant colonel. In a break with protocol, I invited him to my office so I could administer the ceremony myself. 
As I pinned Dan's new insignia on his uniform, I was overcome with the incredible sense of pride and gratitude for Dan's service to our country. By 2013, Barack Obama was in his second presidential administration, and George W. Bush was, by his own description, a painter. It is not clear under what authority Bush was able to administer a ceremony of military promotion. No reference in this narrative to his having requested special permission to perform the ceremony ex officio. The narrative simply assumes the authority and the reader shouldn't blink. The administration of a promotion ceremony might seem like a small act on which to hang a thesis about the unresolved shadows of sovereign privilege, legitimacy, or democratic transition, but perhaps not too small to raise an important issue about the legitimacy and resonance of acts of representation. Pulling on this minor thread returns us to the conundrums of reciprocal visibility. One more minute. The folksy, humorous, and earnest presentation of the ex-president painter may distract us away from the memory of shame or misbegotten imperial wars with all of its victims, of torture as a legitimate interrogation technique, of preventive war as a formal strategic policy. The individual full frontal portraits of the veterans, along with the biographical narratives, present a contradictory reality. That reality in which the democratic impulse to honor each citizen soldier is in tension with the impulse to retain the sovereign powers of an imperial presidency. So it is with our eyes wide open that we should assess the multiple questions related to the portraits George W. Bush has painted, questions about who gets to paint whom, about what it means to render and rend, about power and visibility in the aftermath of an era. Thank you. Um, I have to begin with a little bit of, a, of an admission. Um, I changed my topic midstream, and so I am neither about paintings, nor selfies, nor hashtags, but I have reverted in a moment that I think is quite important to be thinking about news photos. Um, uh, though I had assumed that I was going to be speaking about Me Too, I'm also no longer speaking about Me Too, but I'm going to be speaking about uh, my new president. So, bear with me. When thinking of witnessing, we orient to things we can see, to what's obvious and evidentiary. But witnessing accommodates not only what's visible, but what isn't. Though we know of the world largely through acts of visualization, we nourish an orientation to the invisible that tells us we don't need to see everything in order to act as if it were there and encourages us to fill in imagined outcomes to what we are shown. That orientation is no stranger to current dark times. This era of so-called post-truth, alternate facts, and fake news rides on the logic of invisibility of agreeing not to see as an integral part of knowing and of acting on that knowledge without admitting its qualified nature. This is relevant when addressing, uh, when witnessing through news images where we're forced paradoxically to ask what does invisibility look like and how do we know it when we can't see it? When the link between what we see and what we agree not to see is more complex than we think, new models of witnessing are in order. 
So I want to do two things. Uh, first is to discuss invisibility as a type of visual knowledge and its shape in the news, and two, address its impact on authoritarianism, uh, specifically uh, the Trump regime. First to invisibility as a type of knowledge. Drawing on what Georg Zimmel famously called non-knowledge, or nichtwissen, the knowledge of what is not known, Invisibility exemplifies how knowledge formations foster action on the basis of partial or absent detail. Though this tends to happen subconsciously, it does not mean that non-knowledge is chaotic. It plays to the logic of strategic disregard, to what Robert Merton called specified ignorance, people acting in accordance with a well-defined lack of knowledge. This suggests that just as ignorance is about more than the absence of knowledge, so is invisibility about more than the absence of visuals. All action starts as visible to someone. Nothing becomes invisible without a reason. So it's no surprise that invisibility has attributes, principles of inclusion and exclusion, rankings of hierarchy and ordering, targets of naturalization, ellipses of emphasis. With invisibility becoming, in Philip Ball's words, the stock description for groups and behaviors that pass mostly unnoticed or ignored in society, it now implies an absence of potency, of voice, and of legitimacy. But the opposite is also true. From work on race and gender and class estrangement, we know that invisibility can also signify defiant power skepticism, resistance, critique, and counter-authority. This means that the binary logic of visible-invisible misunderstands how visualization works. Its either-or quality simplifies the image's workings and narrows the act of witnessing, helping us walk right by opportunities for more autonomous, critical public engagement. And the news is crucial here. Journalism has always been about managing the gap between what's attended to and what's left out. This isn't always admitted, for journalism normatively admits to broad visibility, the fullest representation, seen as serving the public good and making invisibility a violator of what the news is for. And yet invisibility has always been at the core of journalistic practice, even if it hasn't been called as such. Walter Lippmann famously established that the news is no more than the depiction of simple pictures in our heads. And we know that news, by definition, relies on frames and filters, which are themselves strategies of making things invisible. This ability to erase events and issues and personalities, both conceptually and optically, makes invisibility instrumental to understanding the news. And yet we may have focused on visibility so much that we don't address what remains intentionally unshown. Invisibility is driven by occupational, <coughs> institutional, technological, and sociocultural variables. What can't be shown is impacted by impartiality and clarity and simplicity, by institutional power dynamics of self-interest and acquiescence, by media formula and preset programming modes, and by sociocultural biases. All make it easy to leave whole aspects of the news out of the picture where marginal groups, unpopular causes, sidelined issues face an uphill battle to secure news depiction, 
sacrificed for the strategic repair to a visible center. So it's no wonder, then, that the journalism-based Pointer Institute critiqued what it called visible news, invisible stories, arguing that news coverage occurs alongside stories that necessarily remain unseen. Invisibility thus prevails easily in the news, even while visibility discursively drives its prescribed modes of coverage. Enter the era of Donald Trump. Invisibility with Donald Trump plays a special role, for modern authoritarians use the invisible to exploit the institutions of democratic regimes for non-democratic purposes. Via what one scholar described as cloaking repressive measures under law, imbuing them with legitimacy, and rendering them more difficult to detect and eliminate, authoritarians rely on the unseen, on devices like measures and effects and platforms that ensure that they slip undetected through the weakest links in otherwise supposedly democratic environments. Rarely visible, often subtle, autocratic rule gets its way by forcing action out of the public eye via acts of coercion and censure and exclusion and insult and manipulation and closure and repudiation, intimidation, and pure disregard. The invisibility associated with Donald Trump is alarming because, as we now see, most Americans don't recognize it. To borrow from Vox's depiction of the popular take on authoritarianism, in this case uh, it was dealing with Malaysia, but it holds here too, Americans tend to have a brutish, unnuanced understanding of authoritarian rule. For most, it is fantastical and cartoonish, with thugs and dictators, hardship, uber-controlled activity, and murder. These descriptors draw from myth-making and a kind of imaginary othering, where the opposite of democracy is the absence of everything that characterizes the democracy one knows. They draw, too, from a media intent on crafting a tempered record, visual and otherwise, of all that happens, regardless of how outrageous it might be. This is why obviously critical visual impulses of Trump are almost nowhere in the news. Though images of dissent and irony and satire critique Trump's autocratic style all over soft TV programming and online, in toys and comics and gaming and online and and theater and film, news images of Trump are more timid and less fully representative. Invisibility perseveres because all those drivers I just mentioned conspire against representation. Journalism's visual cues regularly tone down Trump's depiction, leaving troubling aspects of him unseen and needing to be taken on faith. This makes invisible dimensions as important as what's seen, giving witnessing new centrality in the news. And because Trump relies on the fact that autocratic rule works via the unseen, we must closely look at what's being shown so as to better assess what's being kept from us. Trump is visualized through what's been labeled a trope of fragmentation, where partial, multiplied, split, distorted, bifurcated body parts, Trump without a head, two heads, pieces of a torso, convey him as off-kilter, out of touch, and dangerous. These degrees of invisibility, rather than the visible-invisible binary, uh, both orient to and complicate what image handlers are orchestrating, 
leaving us to ask, as the Washington Post queried, who is the real Donald Trump? And this is key because the modus operandi of autocratic rule is confusing reality and illusion. But these degrees also orient to subtle dimensions in what we see. So let's look at an image of Trump where he's not portrayed um, to show how invisibility vies with what is being shown. This image uh, was taken in October of 2017 by Reuters photographer Mike Blake. Across old and new media, it was hotly contested by those for and against Trump. The photo, as we see, is cut neatly in two. Uh, on the left, the Las Vegas Mandalay Hotel, where the worst mass shooting in U.S. history killed 59 and injured 500 at an outdoor music concert. The broken structure displays what the New York Times labeled a pair of gouged out eyes from where the shooter took aim. On the right, an airborne Air Force One, days later transporting an unseen Trump home after delivering condolences. The photo juxtaposes violence on one side with the presidency on the other, asking us to consider the relationship between them and raising questions about the appropriate institutional response in the wake of mass violence. Praise for what the photo depicted celebrated Trump's speedy arrival, his sidestepping policy issues like gun control, his salute to first responders and visit with survivors, all widely depicted. Images showed a broadly smiling U.S. president with all sorts of local Nevadans. One wounded survivor uh, chose to stand when Trump entered the hospital ward, uh, reminding me, Robin, of, the, of the, the image that you just showed. And the photo went viral in contrast to the kneeling of NFL players earlier that year. Critique targeted the same issues flip side. Trump's delay in articulating empathy, his decision not to visit the hotel itself, his complicity in getting the injured survivor to stand, his refusal to address gun control or call the shooter a terrorist. The LA Times announced Trump's visit with a picture of an Elvis impersonator, while the only other image of Air Force One and the Mandalay Hotel showed the aircraft on the ground blocking the building, leaving little doubt as to the act of presidential spin that was being signified. These contradictory readings prompted the New York Times Magazine to track the, US, the use value of images of broken glass, and the piece ended by saying, the, p the photo places the scene of the crime alongside the presidential plane. It's almost a political statement. But a statement saying what? That the president is ignoring the problem? That his presence consoles a frightened nation? It's a clear picture, but it has no clear political meaning. That political meaning, however, lies in what's not seen in the photo, in the witnessing trope from which it mnemonically diverges. Witnessing has long been portrayed in the news as evidence of official responsiveness to violence. All the way back to the liberation of the concentration camps of World War II, seeing the damage and being depicted doing so has been used as a recurrent stand-in for official action, evidence that officials were paying attention to things that might have gone under their, uh, under their radar. The juxtaposition of sites of violence and those who witness its damage uh, has depicted a, a long line of catastrophic, catastrophic events in the news. 
9-11, and more recently, terror in Aleppo and Istanbul. But rather than showing witnesses to violence, our photo depicts the opposite. The presidential aircraft is on its way out, as if Trump were escaping the broken hotel, sheltered, even barricaded, by an officious transport vessel impervious to human loss. Not only is Trump not shown then, but the inanimate object that stands in for his presence is depicted fleeing the scene. Viewers of the image noticed this break in witnessing's depiction. As the photo circulated, it was discussed in comparison with earlier catastrophic events like 9-11 and debated as to its piercing depiction of Trump's defects. As one Reddit poster noted, Air Force One in Las Vegas equals Con Air. This juxtaposition and its variation from the originary trope pushed the public to critique what it was being shown. The more the image circulated, the less kind and more reflective its viewing public became, and no clear meaning unless one looked more closely at the photo and its meaning across time to show how invisibility complicated what was being shown in one picture. This photo is emblematic of a slew of images showing an invisible Trump, shielded by inanimate objects, airplanes in Puerto Rico, motorcades in Virginia, and at the, uh, the Mexico border, helicopters here in London. They call on us to notice how the ongoing depiction of Trump's presidential acts reveal, reveals a president coming undone. So what does this tell us about witnessing? It's no accident that this image was part of a list of what The Atlantic recently called the most 2017 photos ever, for lack of a better descriptor. 2017 has become an age of vis invisibility, where critical stances on autocrats regularly juxtapose what is known with its more important messages unseen. The fact that what we see depends on our agreeing first to what we don't see, what, to what we see, the fact that what we see depends on our agreeing first to what we don't need to see makes our witnessing complicit. But these images suggest we can use invisibility as an offset, for it offers an opportunity for critical thinking by orienting to a fuller spread of vantage points on what we see. Repeatable tropes, multiple pictures, picture fragments, and recurrent images. That activity requires a different mode of literacy where viewers can be taught to engage more discerningly, thoughtfully, and critically with what they are given. This says that our witnessing needs to change. If invisibility invites a different kind of looking that forces us to probe behind what we see, it offers us, too, a productive corollary for news engagement writ large, orienting beyond what we're given accommodating background and context and significance and meaning and complexity and our own critical engagement as witnesses. And in this day and age, I can think of few more necessary coping strategies for resisting the autocrats among us. Thank you. And yes, that is toilet paper on his foot. <laughs> Okay, thank you all so much for this incredible uh, panel and, and for asking us to think differently about um, new cultures of witnessing and, and what the mechanisms, all three, I think all three papers really 
um, gave us a different point of entry into thinking about what the mechanisms of visibility and invisibility are um, and, and how this dynamic works as appropriation or distraction or obfuscation in each of the three papers. Um, and and through, that, through that dynamic ends up retrenching dominant power relations in a way that, that is, seems especially insidious um, in the current moment. Um, so um, I thought all three papers really, really came at these new cultures of witnessing in a really interesting way. We have um, time uh, for questions um, from the audience for Q&A here, but also wanted to give you an opportunity to, to respond to each other if you'd like um, for a few minutes before we open it up more broadly. Somebody has their hand up already. Oh, I don't know if it seems very. Uh, okay, should we? Uh, sure, why don't we open it up for uh, the audience? Do you have a mic? Uh, can you raise your hand again? Uh, what is witnessing? What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would define it as the act of intentional, prolonged looking, uh, usually connected to some kind of larger, larger uh, uh, justification. Um, the act of bearing witnessing of bearing witness, of course, dates to uh, World War II and specifically the atrocities of World War II. And, and so, bearing witness evolved then as a mode of looking in order to take action. Can I just add to that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I was thinking of that as, as I was listening to uh, my um, fantastic, actually, co-panelists. Um, I think we operate on, on slightly different understandings of witnessing, and I suppose that's where your question comes from. Um, I think some of us defined it more explicitly, others um, kind of left it there as an implicit assumption. But I think there is something productive about the different ways in which we kind of Coined witnessing in our in our uh, in our thoughts and and our, and our talks now, for me, for instance, witnessing is uh, in in this particular work and, and my work throughout so far is is very much connected to uh, it's it's a meaning making act uh, that. Uh, charges our encounter with human vulnerability, with moral, uh, with a moral kind of direction, with a, with the demand for a more, for a, uh, for action. So I think spectatorship, uh, meaning, um, action, and ethics are very much connected in my work in relation to vulnerability. I think uh, you know. Uh, Barbie just talked about the context of journalism, and here we have a context of art that I thought was particularly interesting in terms of how we think through witnessing as something that forces us to confront vulnerability and at the same time sublimate it, beautify it, and, 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 and stop thinking about responsibility, but think again about self-victimhood, right? Think about how therapeutic it is for the artist, the sovereign, to actually um, paint uh, as if the owner's job is not the job of the soldier breaking into pieces in the battlefield, but on the sovereign who took the decision and, and now has to kind of reconfirm his belief in humanity and in, 
um, in his troops. So I think that, you know, there are different ways in which art, journalism, um, and, and, and social media perhaps um, approach and, and define witnessing. Uh, but I, I, what I hope you got out of it is, is a kind of a, a very interesting set of ideas that you can think through or think against. I'll just add one, one other element. I, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, that the, the origin of the term witnessing, I think one of the ancient origins of the term had to do with the um, concept of, of a survivor. And... Uh, that a survivor of some kind of traumatic event or some some rupture, some crisis, um, would then bear witness having survived. But of course, there's a paradox there, right? Because um, those who uh, don't survive are not able to bear witness, and so there's always some degree of distance um, that's allowed to a witness that isn't allowed. Uh, to someone who doesn't survive. And so I think there are kind of multiple and, and paradoxical uh, concepts of witnessing that, um, you know, that do speak to uh, a contemporary dilemmas about um, who, you know, who has, who has the right to bear witness, whose representations of a particular reality are legitimate, um, are believable, um, who, who gets to represent what happened. Um, so I think it's, 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 it's multiple and contradictory as a concept. Maybe that's why it's so interesting. We can open it up to other questions. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. It was very interesting. And if you don't mind a personal question, I'm just wondering what is the most surprising finding uh, that you came across while uh, composing your papers? What a question. I'll go first. That, that's a very original question. Thank you. Um, I would say that... I'm writing a book on how the Cold War drives the news, and I'm looking at the ways in which um, an aspect uh, of Cold War-mindedness, of particular tenets about visibility and about, about projection and, and about enmity, um, have produced something in American news, uh, U.S. news, um, that that organizes around very narrow and very unproductive tenets. Um, I think for me the most surprising thing um, was seeing how um, un, un, how unreflective uh, uh, the use of images still remains in the U.S. press. I find it horribly, horribly uh, uh, unsettling. And as our technologies have grown more and gotten more um, more uh, varied, uh, our, our, our tropes for visualization have shrunk. So there is a kind of way in which we can see more images all over the place, but we're seeing less in the images that we see. And that 
um, was not surprising to me, but was what was surprising to me was to see how unbelievably reflective Donald Trump has been um, has been uh, visualized in the U.S. press, even in the U.S. press, and even in the I would say the international press. And I mean by press, I mean media, I mean television, I mean all over the place. The 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 degree to which. Um, the the um, the the uh, the leader in charge comes into a visual trope all of his own, regardless of how outrageous his actions might be. Um, I think there were two things that surprised me. Um, one was um, that um, it was only after you know. Uh, reading the book and spending time, you know, looking at the paintings and reading the narratives that, you know, I read the afterword of the book. And I think it's on, it's in the afterword that Bush says that these came from photographs rather than from face-to-face encounters and, and, you know, studio sort of sittings. I mean, he knows all of these veterans. He he meets them and plays golf with them and mountain bikes with them at his Bush Institute functions. Um but th- there was never this, you know, face-to-face, eye-to-eye confrontation over several hours or whatever it would take to paint a portrait. And that was surprising to me, but it, 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 it then began to make sense. The other thing that really surprised me, but then again, knowing Bush shouldn't have, was how lighthearted the book was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fun. It's fun. Everything is fun. And... You know, it's all. You know, he's got little quotes in all of the narratives about oh, and so and so. You know, first time on the golf course after struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, et cetera, et cetera. And I said to him, "Okay, you're going to hit a hole in one today, aren't you? Uh, I order you to hit a hole in one. You know, and this this kind of like jocular, right, humor, which is like woven through the book in in the context of these." Really, really horrendous and harrowing descriptions of the of the wounds and 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 the illnesses that have followed from them. So, you know, war as innocuous. I'm surprised that the most surprising thing that you found wasn't that Bush had reinvented himself as a painter. <laughs> <laughs> and a not very good one. And really, you know, he's really not very good reviews, one. But, but he's following Winston Churchill, who, as you all must know. <laughs> Did the same thing. <laughs> Lily, do you want to I, add to me a just, just briefly, I think uh, for me it wasn't really a kind of empirical finding, something that I saw, but um, as I was trying to create that story of, of kind of changing cultures of witnessing within the broad trauma, empire of trauma that I um, have been working on for my, my, my uh, book on um, witnessing without uh, responsibility. Um, what really surprised me was that move that, uh, it, that seems to be happening between, on the one hand, the rise of self-righteous victimhood amongst our own political cultures, on the one hand, um, in both sides of the Atlantic, well, certainly within the Western world, I think also um, in, broadly in Western Europe, you know, the rise of, of authoritative populisms um, is, is very much based around this idea that we are the victims on the one hand, and on the other hand, the kind of uh, um, gradual erosion almost of credible 
and, 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 and contextualized and informed uh, I- uh, imageries and stories of distant others, people who, people who come to us as refugees or victims of conflict zones or, 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 or people who are in, in, you know, living in, in zones of chronic need, so to speak, around the world. I think there is a parallel move where the more we become victims in our own cultures, the less our institutions are willing to provide informed and rich narratives and images of distant others. Okay, Sam. Right here. Right here. Um, Hi. Uh, I wanted to ask in Portraits of Courage about, um, so with the Las Meninas, that there was this kind of like unique, rich object of, of the portrait that's not reproducible. And then it seemed like there was a lot of effort put into this, the, these works as a book, as something that can be transmitted um, and reproduced easily, but still is like based on these rich, even if they were just drawn from photographs, still these like rich unreproducible images. So I was wondering how that related to your idea of kind of like the sovereign uh, painter and his subjects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good Good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, I think... I think that the, you know, if you take a look even just at, you know, the Habsburg, the Spanish Habsburg kings, you know, there were so many paintings done of them, many by Velazquez, right? So that one thinks about the monarch as a kind of infinitely reproducible, (laughs) right? Um, And in fact, the only one who deserves a portrait. now, I think what Las Meninas does is it kind of problematizes the centrality of the sovereign, um, you know, who, who may or may not be there and is only there in a mirror. And there were a couple of mirrors, I think, in, in other presentations tonight. So that was kind of interesting. Um, and and I th- so I think that... Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I think... It, look, I think... Sovereignty requires reproducibility in order to sustain its um, hold, its power, its its amplitude, its magnitude. And um, at the same time, it has to kind of constantly remind you that it's only one individual who can um, occupy that position, right? So again, another kind of paradox I think the, the the interesting thing about the Portraits of Courage book is that it seems to be going in a very different direction, right, which is the sovereign painting the subjects, okay, and honoring them and reproducing them in this kind of serialized way, right, so that it's their individuality. But in fact, if it, you know, if you think about it, um, there he is, you know, he's right in the midst of it. He cannot resist putting himself in the center of this this series and and putting himself in there as literally the only one who's not wounded you know so i i feel like the kind of that old you know whatever uh you know ancient pull of sovereignty you know with all of its um 
purviews and prerogatives is still somehow there, even as it seems like he's trying to deconstruct it in the service of his subjects. Just as a follow-up to that, I, um, I don't know if either of you have seen, has anyone seen this new painting that Trump has commissioned for the Oval Office? Um, where he pictures himself with only Republican presidents from the past, no Democratic presidents from the past at all. And, and it's, and it's, so it really connects this, both of these papers, this idea of the sovereign painting himself as the subject and the, you know, as you talked about, Barbie, this, the, the, that invisibility is more than just about the absence of visuals. And it's also, just a really bad painting. It looks like the dogs playing poker painting, you know, <laughs> except for it's a bunch of Republican presidents sitting around a poker table. So, um, um, you know, <laughs> sorry. You have to look at it. It really does look like that. Um, yeah, okay, yes, I do. You had a question. Thank you very much for this. And thank you very much for this intellectual um, talk. My question is about the notion of self-victimization uh, it was interesting that it's mentioned, especially after 9-11, and I wonder what's the purpose of self-victimization? What can be gained out of it? Thank you. <laughs> I think you... <laughs> Who talked about self-victimization? I, I, I quoted Sarah <laughs> in my own paper, but I can... I can... I... You, you, you stop. You stop. No, no. You see, it was your paper. You, you start, and then I'll and then I'll come okay, in. Then you can talk about okay. your own point about that. Okay. Um, so for me, self-victimization comes in 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 the kind of historical trajectory of cultures of witnessing, right? So and it comes into um, into into that narrative, if you like, that historical narrative in 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 the sense in the form of particularly social media platforms. Uh, that have voiced numerous, uh, particularly male um, uh, figures of power who claim that they lose either prestige, status, money uh, because of particular accusations within the public sphere. That's one way in which self-victimhood is manifested itself. And it is, I would say, a kind of a digital media phenomenon today. And the second way in which it manifests itself is through kind of long, longer term but very intense campaigns uh, that construct a kind of an antagonism and a division, um, enemy lines, if you like, between us and those who invade. You have seen the very recent um, pictures of, 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 of uh, South American um, um, groups kind of marching towards the U.S. and how these have been portrayed and appropriated in political discourse um, in, in, the, in, in, in the States. Uh, but that was exactly the rhetoric that was used here during uh, uh, the Brexit campaign, and that is precisely the rhetoric that has been used as rhetoric of self-victimhood, of us being under attack, of us losing rights, losing employment, losing peace and, and, and safety uh, during the 2015 um, um, migration uh, crisis uh, when most of the European borders closed precisely because of, of those arguments of victims. So I, I would say there are two formulations of that idea of self-victimhood uh, in contemporary political uh, uh, discourse. And I think what that does is that it, it, it strategically reverses um, the uh, relationship between uh, victim and, 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 and the spectator that is at the heart of 
of the witnessing of vulnerability um, in the sense that um, it kind of totally disavows um, those people, it kind of um, evacuates those people of their historical and systemic um, kind of um, condition of vulnerability, the fact that they are fleeing because of a particular reason, for instance, uh, or victims in, in the Western public spheres speaking out because they have been done injustice, and turns that position of victimhood onto, onto the powerful, right? So that the others are spectating the powerful being a victim. And I think that is a very clever political move uh, that obvious as it may look to many of us, it has actually worked um, um, uh, very efficiently as a political strategy for the rise of populism and ultimately for the winning of authoritative male leaders around the world. So I think that there is a particular rhetoric, if you like, rhetorical reversion there um, that effaces the historical conditions of vulnerability, posits a vulnerable victim um, uh, who, at the service of particular power relations and perpetuates a particular uh, a patriarchal, if you like, authoritative political order. So um, that's what I would say is, is, is a problem with it, right? Or one of the problems of it. Would you like to say anything? Well, you said it very eloquently. I think. Um, I, I think the only the, what I what I was talking about in the in when you cited that is really, again, this like Lily just said, this kind of the the power of this political strategy to take this incredibly. Um, uh, rich in many sorts of ways, economic, socially, culturally, nation after 9-11 into um, reroute the strategy of victimhood, of political victimhood <clears throat> back or onto those people who had positions of power. And so to, to then, and then to think about it in the current moment when as your slide of Kavanaugh and yours, you know, this, this stuff about Trump um, is really about this retrenching of power relations by rerouting victimhood victimhood onto exactly, like you said, Lily, precisely those who have inflicted harm onto others. And so this, this kind of malleability of vulnerability, um, you know, how it can be used in different ways is, um, is just, I think it's really, it's compelling, but it's also kind of, it's, it's also sort of horrifying in the way that it is then, you know, uh, resulting in kind of authoritarianism and populism and so on. Um, I th but I'll stop talking then, because um, we have time for one more question. Thank, thank you. Uh, a lot of what has been said has um, focused on visual culture, and I'm wondering if you could share with us something of your thoughts as to the phenomena of oral witnessing and how that is increasingly uh, coming into the discourse. Well, you're assuming that it is coming into the discourse. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd agree with you. Um, I think that the visual has magnified in terms of its capacity and its centrality to accommodate uh, witnessing activity. I feel that the oral has very much kind of gone to a background stance where all we need to see are these tropes, right, that we recognize and we automatically input meaning to them. So I'm not sure that oral witnessing is anywhere near where it used to be, right? 
Um, that would be my that would be my stance. I think that the modes of, of witnessing are changing. The, the uh, kind of the, the, the new lands, media landscape is 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 pushing towards the, the visual, as, as as Barbie said. I I, I, st- I still think that there is a place for language within that. I think a lot of the self victimhood that we see. Um, for instance, in political, dis- uh, political speeches or on social media, on Twitter accounts, a lot of the Trump victimhood is actually linguistified. It's tweets against fake news. It's where he actually calls himself a victim in language. But is that the same, the same uh, kind of linguistic genre as the kind of oral testimonies that we know from the past? No. And I think, again, just as we have to kind of develop new literacies to understand the place of visibility and invisibility in, in contemporary journalistic discourse. I think it's the same with, with language. We need to find ways to understand and engage analytically with uh, new languages of witnessing that now can be conflict, confined to 150 characters, but they still do a very important job in, in, in disseminating meanings about Victimhood. Or 450 characters, because he often tweets three oh, at no, once. Yes. Yeah. Double. Double. I also think that there's the different kinds of oral witnessing, um, and this question also made me think of, of the recording of Trump two weeks before, two weeks before the election, um, the, the, the infamous e-entertainment story where he... Um, you know, is recorded saying, talking about getting away with sexual assault because he's powerful and rich, um, um, and how there was this moment where I thought that kind of oral witnessing, that report, that recording of that, has to do something. It it must do something. And in fact, it was very easily explained away. And I think that's so. You know, some of the processes of visibility and invisibility, if you can kind of apply them to oral witnessing, also is about what is. Not not what you know how what is heard covers up or distracts us or obfuscates from what that is not heard you know in that kind of um can i just say yes of course you can have the last word i think it also it, it raises it raises larger questions in the sense that i don't know that we've figured out in this moment how to deal with bifurcated action in a moment where much of the world is polarized. How to, how to, what do we need from visuals? And so I think that the whole relationship between words and images is shifting. It's shifting incrementally. It's shifting often in counterintuitive in, ways in the sense that it goes back and forth. But I think that we haven't yet figured out what the visual, right, which has historically always been seen as a, as a tool of universalization, right, what the visual does in a, in a moment where, where all action is being codified as polarized. And so I think that we're in a, in a paradigm shift. I don't know where it's going yet. I don't think we can know. But I think there's something about, certainly about politics, which is at the heart. We know, none of us even said politics, I think. Um, at the heart and power of everything that we've been talking about um, as it kind of takes shape vis-a-vis the visual. Which is a fantastic way to end a fantastic set of conversations. Thank you all so much for um, presenting your work. Thank you for your questions. <laughs>